Alright everyone, welcome along to another episode of Martin's World. Uh, guys, before I introduce today's guest, I'd like to remind you that if you want to support the show and su- support the fight for cannabis legalisation in Ireland, you can do so by signing up to the patreon.com forward slash martinsworld, or you can also make a donation in the form of bitcoins over on martinsworld.e, there'll be a link there on the homepage. Um, all of the funds that will be gathered there will be used uh, to set up a cannabis activist hub here in Cork City so we can bring together the cannabis community so we can be better represented uh, in policies that will be formed here in Ireland as cannabis becomes legalised. Um, so guys, um, with that being said, uh, I'd like to introduce today's guest who is uh, none, other, none other than uh, Natalie O'Regan. Natalie O'Regan is uh, a Masters of Law student at the University College Cork and uh, she has a, a keen interest in drug policy reform and harm reduction. And her, her area of research involves the criminological theory of stigma and its impact on cannabis users. Um, she advocates for the decriminalization as the first step needed in the process of removing such stigma. And I was very interested in co- having a conversation with Natalie uh, just about that uh, because uh, I, I've faced a lot of stigma in my own life um, regarding my, my own cannabis use. Um, so guys, uh, without further ado, I give you Natalie O'Regan. Natalie O'Regan, uh, thanks very much for taking the, the time this afternoon to, to come and join me on uh, Martin's World. Um, Natalie, uh, why I'm very interested in having you on the podcast is uh, I, I believe that the last time we met was the first time we actually met as well was uh, at the Support on Punish event. And uh, when I was talking to you there, uh, I, I wasn't aware of the fact that your studies were so specific about cannabis. I only learned that uh, more recently um, when you were on uh, the European Cannabis Advocacy Network. Um, I, I believe um, you, you kind of alluded to the fact that that was what your work was. And then I was like, geez, now I'm even more interested to pick the, <laughs> this girl's brain. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I, I suppose before we get into that part of it, uh, Natalie, just uh, how... What is your academic background and uh, how did you get into this kind of uh, field of research? Well, my academic background is short and sweet, really, because I, like many others, kind of our generation left school at 16, had no interest in education. You just want to go out, get a job, leave school, leave that that world behind you. And I left school 16, started working in restaurants and stuff like that and worked in restaurants and hospitality management for 10 nearly 15 years and at 30 I thought it was a fantastic idea to try and go back to college so I was working in Dublin and Wicklow and I ended up moving back home and I was sitting on my arse going I'm taking a couple of months off Asher I'll apply to college and see what happens so I applied to UCC for law Asher the worst they can say is no it's fine at least I tried never expecting that they'd actually let me in and they let me in and I remember ringing my partner and it was on his birthday going oh Jesus I'm going to college what am I going to do (laughs) I like at this stage I didn't even know how to open a laptop I didn't know anything about Microsoft Word like it was pen and paper all the way and started studying law in UCC and I'd done my bachelor's degree in law and I finished it wasn't quite ready to give up the college experience so I stayed on for another year to do my master's degree so we have to write a dissertation for our master's and I was trying to think of what to write and I have a great passion for trying to explain the law in plain English so that was my original goal was to try and go down that way and I said no if I'm going to be stuck with something that's going to 
probably give me mental health issues and God knows what else for the next 18 months, two years. I'm going to write about something I love. And I've always been passionate about cannabis reform, which was kind of made cemented more than anything else by Vera Toomey and her campaign to get medicinal cannabis for her daughter, Ava. And I said, no, I'm going to write about cannabis, but what am I going to write about? And through the jigs and the reels and many late nights and a lot of reading, I focused on the criminological theory of stigma and labeling and how that affects cannabis users and trying to kind of marry criminology then with the actual legal application is quite hard. So I tried to bring it all together and figure out how has the law or how does the law affect the stigma. And then I went down many, many rabbit holes and I ended up writing about the consequences of stigma on cannabis users and how Portugal's decriminalization actually helped remove a lot of the stigma for drug users in general, but as well for cannabis users over there. Okay, interesting. And uh, what was the, the conclusion of that study or that research? The, the conclusion, well, it's only kind of small, like it would need a lot more research, like a master's dissertation is yeah. only 15,000 words. No, I say that only it was a hard slog to get there. It is an area that does need a lot more research mm-hmm. with specific focus on cannabis. But the Portuguese have the Portuguese decriminalization model has shown significant effects to removing the stigma. So for like stigmatization in accessing treatment. There was a lot more people access treatment for um, cannabis use as well as other drugs. But also they were a lot more accepted into their communities. They they didn't feel outcasted. They didn't feel labeled. They didn't feel stigmatized as much. Mm -hmm. Um, And I kind of found that once the legitimate label of a criminal, of criminality was removed, the public no longer felt legitimized in their stigmatization of drug users yeah interesting that you uh went for portugal when uh looking at that all right um I, I was over there more recently and uh there's a lot of uh still illegal street dealing over there and um i, I was sitting down in a restaurant actually uh, and having some food and i was talking to the waiter and uh, there, i could see the guys uh, going up and down the street who only a couple of minutes ago were trying to forcibly sell me stuff and uh, I, I was asking them about about it, uh, uh, just about their opinions of, of these people. And they were just like, oh, they're, they're, they're filthy. It's like what, what they sell. It's uh, a lot of rubbish um, because they, they rip off tourists all the time. Um, and they were just kind of they were very well aware of what was going on. But but they still kind of was this this criminality there associated with it because it still isn't uh, something where you can walk into a store and say for a cannabis consumer to go in and openly purchase cannabis. Um, <clears throat> but but I think uh, Joe Glow said it well when uh, he was over and we had him in UCC, uh, I believe it was in uh, 2015 or 2014 there. And uh, he, he said that, that that was just an experiment uh, for Portugal, for, for Europe. And uh, he goes, it was a, a successful one, but the next step in that uh, experiment is to, to regulate the, the supply of the drugs in order to more effectively kind of address the, the, what you were talking about there, which is the stigma, but, but the, the proper access uh, to, to help. Because a lot of the times the, the stigma that's applied to these drug users 
um, that, that, that can switch off the, the mechanism within them to, to seek out help because they, they don't believe that they're, they're worth helping, you know, that they're, they're, they're junkies, they're, they're lowlifes, they're, they're drug addicts. Like I, I was in court in uh, September and I was representing myself in court and I was up in the witness box uh, being grilled by um, the DPP and uh, they were asking me questions. And then the judge took it upon himself to ask me, he goes, are you an addict? And he asked, he asked me in a, in a tone of voice like that, that was very demeaning to, towards me. And I was just like, judge, no, I'm, I'm not an addict. I goes, I'm a passionate advocate who, who believes that the, the prohibition of drugs is much more harmful to our society. And what you're doing is, uh, is you're punishing me for, for standing up for my beliefs now um, because there is no victim in the court. And uh, oh, he, he didn't like me being able to speak up to him like that at all. Like, and he, he didn't even acknowledge that with a reply at all. He just kind of nodded back over to the DPP and uh, he was like, oh, no further questions at all, Your Honour. And uh, that, that was it. Well, it's, it's absolutely ridiculous what, what's going on in our court systems. Like it's, uh, it's a complete money racket, really. Um, I, I think you, you shared a post there uh, yesterday as well about the, the guy up in court for the two cannabis plants that they valued at 200 euro, which was interesting, the valuation. It's a very low valuation compared on their past uh, reputation, shall we say. Yeah, I know it was very low reputation, uh, our, our, our valuation. Um, so so I, was, I was blown away by that. But, but the man got off with no conviction. Uh, like and he had to pay money then into the charity box and there, there was certain wording used there but by the solicitor um that that the sitting judge who was uh, absent from that case that the presiding judge was sitting in for um and that's why she said she felt like a nodding dog because she kind of had to follow this judge's way of be- doing things um and he said that uh, that judge likes to swell the poor box this time of year, meaning January, it's, it's the start of the year. Like, guess this is the, the time charities are really trying to kick up um, the, the, the getting money in. Um, so it was just interesting, like, that he was alluding to that, like, that these cannabis users, by and large, a lot of the times, like, if you're given an opportunity, no, no conviction, and just pay, look, a donation, that's what they call it, a donation, a donation, but they tell you how much the donation needs to be as well. <laughs> um, yeah. And you get off the conviction like they're, they're literally threatening us and uh, discriminating against us just to, that so we can have some normality in life, some some um, hope that there's a future out there where you can get a, a job where your, your criminal record isn't going to get in the way. Like it, it's, it's crazy. It is like I found her comments about being like a nodding dog in the court. Very interesting. I think it was a female judge. But like I found her comments really interesting going in. in in my experience, I kind of took it as what is the role of courts here in terms of cannabis possession? I feel like a nodding dog just saying, put it in the charity box every time we get a case for cannabis possession in front of us. Like, are we, like to me, I took her, her comments as in, this is a waste of time. Why are we doing this? Interesting. Is there I, another way that we can do it? I am like a nodding dog on a bench because I have no choice but to deal with these cases through the poor box. Yeah, that, that's an interesting perspective. I, I was thinking it more like that she wanted to punish him and she felt like she was powerless to to do anything now because she had to follow the, the footsteps of the, the previous judge. That's how I'd interpreted it. But that, that's an interesting interpretation that uh, she's actually more just annoyed at the fact that uh, like the, the policy makers haven't been doing something. But why is it that the judges can't actually come together and, and make a some sort of a, 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 I don't know, a statement on this kind of a thing that year in, year out, it's it's continuously that the same profile of person for, for, say, cannabis crimes 
um, before him and, and they never do it. I, I just I'm always baffled by that. Like, even, like now we have the adult caution, which is yet to be seen how effective or how good that will be in society. But even previous to that, there was alternative routes to prosecution available to the judges. Yeah. I think it's Section 28 of the Misuse of Drugs Act. They can, like judges can, instead of a criminal conviction, instead of incarceration, instead of a, a fine to the poor box, they can like authorize treatment, they can authorize supervision. Not like in my research, I try to fi find out how many times this section was used by judges and never, absolutely never used by judges. It was resisted. It was brought up by um, defendants and their legal representatives in court and dismissed straight off the bat. For so even cases. previous to this, yeah, even previous to this, there was available uh, alternative routes to prosecution available, but they were just never used. I wasn't too, too aware of that now, actually, to be honest, uh, as much as I've read uh, that piece of document, uh, the 1977 uh, Misuse of Drugs. Act. I have lived it for 18 months, I know it inside and out at uh, this stage. Yeah, yeah, it's a flashbacks of being 17 and being, what, typing her into the internet, like, and getting the first look at it, like, and... Uh, I'm trying to figure out the legal jargon, then on top of it, as a 17-year-old, I can't imagine. Yeah, yeah, no, it was uh, definitely, it was, uh, it, it was intimidating, to, to be honest. Um, and I, I got tried as an 18 year old then because of the, the bloody backlog in our court systems here. Um, even currently, like a, I got caught in April last year and it was September then of it was April 2019 and it was September 2020 by the time I came, got brought up to court for one joint, 10 euros yeah. worth of cannabis. Absolutely. There's a guy that I'm talking to at the moment and he's um, back. He had problems with guard vetting when he got a job. Um, I think it was in like a nursing home or some setting yeah. similar to that. Oh, you're on about. And he had problems with his garden. Yeah. yeah. And it was like 25 euros worth of cannabis. And he was like, I've never gotten anything from the courts. I have never gotten anything. I don't know anything about this. And I think he recently found out that again, he got another job. This whole garden vetting issue came up and he recently found out that apparently the case was dropped in February, which he didn't know about. So yeah. His solicitor is trying to sort it. His new job was trying to sort it. And he's like, I actually have no idea what's going on. Isn't it such a shame like that a person say, working in a nursing home, like I, I, ch I chatted to this bloke and uh, he seems like a very nice guy and he seems like he'd be very dedicated to his job. And he can't get it because uh, he is a, was once a cannabis user. He's actually given her up now, but his past still comes back to haunt yeah. him. Like you, you would like if he if he'd harmed somebody if there was a real victim in the crime but in his crime he was his victim because the way the the, the law sees it is drug use is bad and it's bad for public and it's for public health reasons we've prohibition but like well, imagine what that does to your mental health like it it's absolutely crazy that this this lad is going in there no nine to five uh, he says at the moment it's it's Friday now when they're determining the the outcome of this whole thing for him. But imagine the stress he's gone under. I, I couldn't imagine how, how how his sleep is at nighttime. It's crazy. No. And he he's still so cheery and so optimistic and offbeat about it. If that was me, I, I would be a lot more angry about the situation. Yeah. No, definitely. But that, that's what he's putting out on the surface. But underneath, you, ha you have to think deep down. Like There's no person as uh, immune to this kind of thing. Um, it's go it's going to hurt on some level, whether it be small or big, but it's going to hurt for sure. And um, the prospect of losing your job because you got caught with a bit of cannabis before, and it's just man, it's so annoying. Uh, uh, what, uh, it, 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 
but that like that's what my kind of research went is like these collateral consequences of prohibition it's yeah okay you're a criminal you've you've been caught with cannabis where does that lead you in the future like there is a lot of collateral consequences to that one tiny conviction that one 25 euro cannabis conviction 10 euro one joint cannabis conviction there's a, a ripple effect that goes with it that can be felt years and years later was there any um, particular field of work or career pathway that would have been blocked to a person who has a, a criminal conviction for, say, cannabis anyway? Was there anyone in particular that stood out to you uh, when you were doing your studies? Um, I didn't really go into if there was any specific employment opportunities that would be blocked, but I could imagine that some careers would be affected by a drug conviction at the end of the day, like, yeah. I don't know, the cards or... Yeah, I don't even know. <laughs> Can you join the law society with a drug conviction? I won't go down this rabbit hole. Yeah, I know. These are very valid questions like, to be asking. Can you be a social worker? Can you... Like, I actually don't know if there's any specific employment that would be totally blocked by a drug conviction, but yeah. I can imagine there would be. And if it's not, then it's probably severely curtailed by the fact of Garda vetting and that it will pop up. And mm-hmm. you're like, you have to be open and honest of why you have something on your Garda vetting. Yeah. I got convicted of cannabis. Yeah, I can I, imagine that will change a lot of people's opinions. I, I know for myself, uh, I, I, was unemployed and uh, just going back about 2012 about over eight years ago and I was down in the the welfare office going in signing forms and I got handed a form it didn't there and uh, I'd seen a a course and it was like I was good manufacturing practices and technology and it was all around manufacturing pharmaceutical drugs and uh, medical devices and it was amazing it was a very good course very boring and like a lot of regulations to be read around quality control and quality assurance and stuff but look it, it was all meaningful and it had a place so it was uh, it was worthwhile doing and um, but when i finished that course um there was a number of jobs i was ruled out of there was the johnson and johnson there was uh, the boston scientific um a number of them because uh, drug testing was a part of uh, getting getting into these jobs mm-hmm. and, and i asked that when i got to visit some of the sites i was down on the pfizer site and asked the question i was like in the jobs uh, pathway i was like uh, do you do drug testing and I, he was like yeah and i was like all right i goes i consume cannabis and uh, he was like yeah you won't be able to get a job here straight up and i was like okay so like it's, it's one thing having a criminal past but it's another thing being an active cannabis consumer just straight out jobs rule out. So for me, as a, as a graduate of that course, and I graduated uh, like past every module, um, done really well. Um, I, I was just like, you know, what? I'm going to stick with academics. I went on and I done another four years of uh, of an honors degree course then in, in herbal science uh, to get a better foundation to understand cannabis and uh, the, the human kind of uh, metabolisms and uh, all, all of that stuff. Uh, so, so uh, and, and here I am now today, a bit, bit more educated, understanding a bit more, but, but I feel incredibly discriminated against because like, why am, I, I'm, uh, why am I not a qualified candidate for these jobs because of my, the fact I use cannabis? What is it about that? Like, even when I was doing my research, I've, I was more going down kind of like uh, negative attitudes and public perceptions on cannabis users. For employers, they didn't want cannabis users as employees. They were lazy. They were unproductive. They were concerned about their level of focus, their absenteeism. But 
research, like my research has also shown that once people sat down with these employers and explained the cannabis situation or had a chat with them where the employer the employer could see oh these are this is an actual normal person it's not a lazy unproductive cheech and chong type cannabis user if you were to look at my college record if you were to look at the person and the record uh, before him like uh, you would see that like my, my, my attendance was impeccable like I, I'd about above 98% attendance given the one or two days off like I'm a dad of two daughters so like there, there was going to be a day here or there for for whatever reasons but luckily I take care of my health like I'm out running every day when, when I was in college I was there like half six every morning um, out running on the track, uh, into the gym as soon as it opened, like incredibly motivated, like into the staying in the library and all of that stuff. But the fact that I'm a cannabis user, it's like, oh, I can't. When I graduated that, uh, <clears throat> that course, that despite the fact of all what I achieved and, and uh, the level of uh, grad that I graduated at, I still didn't believe I could achieve a job. I, I went out and I, I went about self-employment, uh, I looked at trying to start up a business and things like that. I was getting into mushroom extracts. Uh, that's what's actually my coffee, the lion's men, mushroom extract. Um, still consuming that. So, uh, but, but it never really took off. Sadly, my business partner got sick and things. And uh, it, I was just missing a whole unit of the business then. So it just didn't work out. Uh, but we'll see what happens there in the future. But again, like uh, I, I just couldn't apply for jobs. I don't see it within me. Why bother? I, that, that's what's always there in my mind. Why bother? This thing is always going to That's come. how stigma affects you. It's mm. you internalize it, even though you kind of think, oh, like I can't get this job. It's a valid thing. You internalize the stigma that you have felt from the public and from society for many years. Mm. And that internalization affects your self-confidence. It gives you low self-esteem. It, yeah. this, these are the ripple effects that I'm talking about with stigma. It's, it goes well beyond the whole negative public attitudes. It's internalized. Mm. It affects mental health. It affects your job employment prospects. It affects you even accessing regular health. Like if you go to the hospital, you're not going to be as open with them as a drug user as you should be. You're going to be scared of telling them that you're a drug user. And even when I was researching it, nurses and doctors' attitudes, they're interwoven with prejudice and stigma once you say you're a drug user. I, I was only automatically to... think you're hunting for education or you're hunting for yeah. tablets and it's it's shocking it but like... at the same time my research also showed me that once they're educated on the topic of drugs mm-hmm. their whole perception changes they have more compassion they have more empathy everything so education yeah. is the key on this how do you how do you educate these people when it's the system from the top down that that it's broken? Like the people at the bottom, you know, that they would be willing to to be educated on the, the subject, but the people at the top just aren't willing to to let them to be educated on it. Like like the fact that the cannabis remains in the schedule one, like the World Health Organization made some incredible recommendations there back uh, in November, and uh, they, they weren't really listened to at all. But one of them got accepted, and there was a number of them that were rejected. And we would be in a much better standing right now if all of those were to be accepted in terms of access to, to of cannabis to researchers. That that's an incredible one that the people don't, aren't aware of. That that's another major effect of prohibition, not not just the stigma, but the, the effect that it has on the, the research. Um, but it has basically smothered and stifled research into cannabis for the last number of years. Yeah. So now it's finally removed. There is going to be a lot more research. And even when you think of an Irish context, if you kind of um, present anything to the government or to the HSE or anything like that, 
oh, we've, we need more Irish research. That's all. That's their main excuses. We need more Irish research. We need more Irish research. Yeah. But up until now, it was very, very difficult to do. Like, would you be surprised by the fact that when I was doing my horrible science course, I had an, a number of lecturers who questioned why I'm doing my uh, sub projects on cannabis. It's like, well, I remember you telling me that at the support don't punish me. <laughs> <laughs> and and then we heard from the top, like, oh, there's not enough Irish research to, to support this. And this is like, well, this is why within the academic system, there's stigma being applied but by the research uh, that are deep the supervisors of the researchers. So if you're a researcher and you put forward a project proposal with cannabis included in there, automatically you're going to be questioned on it. And, and if you don't have any real strong standing, like uh, you would fold to that pressure. Like for me, I, I, I didn't. I, in, in my final year project, I, I sadly, I did. I ended up doing it on um, bloody dandelions. <laughs> yeah, I, I know. And I wanted to do it on uh, the, the products, uh, CBD products off the shelf. And uh Sadly, it was just like not too much of a an issue there around that, and uh, they didn't want to be involved in it, so it never kind of happened. But there's just yeah. stigma right across the board. There's still the standoff, even with academics, even with research or medicinal purposes. There's still the stigma attack. Yeah, like they don't want to be associated with cannabis. Oh, we can't be seen doing that. But even if you think of medical cannabis, like medical cannabis patients face an awful lot of stigma. They're, they have to jump through hoops to get it. They have to go on a register the fact that they actually have medicinal cannabis there. That stigma does not translate to other drugs. If we think of opiate drugs, which are derived from the opium, derived from poppy, which is the exact same thing heroin is made of. Mm-hmm. I don't know the scientific ins and outs. You probably would know a lot more <laughs> of that now, Martin, than I would. But there's no stigma attached to using opium-derived uh, drugs. No. Yes, again, there's still a lot of stigma attached to medicinal cannabis. Yeah, I, I had uh, Pepe Rivera on the podcast here a few weeks back uh, last year, and um, he, he was wearing a bandana throughout the whole interview, and he kind of alluded to the fact of why he was wearing it. And he, he kind of apologized for it too in, in when he was before he gave the explanation because he compared it to the, the stare that the Jews had to wear during the times of the, the, the Nazis and all of that crap. Um, but he was saying like that uh, cannabis consumers, uh, ca- medical cannabis patients even are like second class citizens almost within our society and the way in which they're being treated. Like, like say the can card now in the UK, if, uh, are you aware of what the can card is? Yeah. yeah. And so it's a card medical cannabis patients uh, can get over there because the system is crap. They can't get a, a proper access. So they need these cards. So if they get caught with the illegal cannabis, they have to source for their medical reasons the cops might not take it off them but yet still patients have to give their names into so they have to be listed so they're making themselves known and they're they're, they're kind of you know it's, it's it's a weird weird system it's it's very it's very discriminatory it's second class almost like because as you just very well said like you can go and you can get pre-gabapentinoids all these kind of dangerous dangerous drugs like no problem at all and you just get a prescription just through your doctor. It's all private. It's secure. It's grand. You don't have to register in some sort of system. Have a have a piece of card in your pockets because the the, the authorities might come and search you and you have some sort of a controlled drug. This never happens at all for for people who have these kind of drugs. It, it's crazy. Like what it, do you think of that system, the the can card system? Do, do you think that again applies stigma? While it is beneficial, do you do think there is still stigma in that? 
in like in one part of me it's it's good because it means that patients can access cannabis to treat their illnesses that's needed um, the UK regime, as well as Ireland, like it doesn't have enough qualifying illnesses. You need certain specific illnesses. I think the UK is a lot more than yeah. Ireland would have. Well, chronic but, pain is the big one. Yeah, and that's not included under Ireland in Ireland's regime. Uh, same with like um, multiple sclerosis symptoms. Yeah. There's only certain ones that are included. And like cannabis can go a long way to fix a lot, awful lot of illnesses. In a way, it's good because patients can access it. In a way, it's bad because you have to register, you have to log on. It's like, right, put me on the list, put me there. Now you have my name, you have my address, you know I'm a cannabis user. Mm-hmm. Again, at the same time, it's up to the police over there whether they confiscate your drugs. If they confiscate your drugs, are you then getting prosecuted? Are you then getting criminalized? Yeah. For what? Not being able to access medicinal cannabis correctly? The way that the English government wants you. Like even in Ireland, there's very few cannabis projects that are actually allowed in circulation or allowed to be prescribed. Yeah, I believe it's four. And products, all, I thought I didn't think it was four. I thought it was only two or three. Um, it could be three, actually. You could be right. I think it's three or four. But that's not enough. Like anyone that knows cannabis knows that different strains, different levels of THC versus CBD, they all work differently to every patient. Yeah. So if you're translating, does medicinal cannabis, the oil form, or buy your flower off of a street dealer? Do you know what's in it? Do you know the THC? Like any smart patient would rather grow their own so they know what they're growing. They know what they have. They know it's not contaminated with pesticides and God knows what else that they spray on it. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, they're still relying on an illegal market. Yeah, no, that that is the the big killer. Like, and it's it's all because of our policymakers. They've had a number of cho- chances. Like, Luking Flanagan's bill was the first bill that was before him. The legalized cannabis going back, um, <clears throat> back I think it was twenty thirteen when he had that bill. Yeah, yeah, it was it was a good while back. But again, a good opportunity. Um, they, they could have made a, a number of amendments to that bill be, because it wasn't perfect. There was definitely issues within it. Um, but, but there was an opportunity to sort out this whole mess, destigmatize a whole community of people out there and open up the doors to the proper research, proper access to patients, because that was within Ming's bill as well as uh, addressing the medical needs. Uh, and they did not know. And, and then we had Vera Toomey, as, as you brought her up a while ago, and uh, her march from, from Cork to Dublin. I was um, sadly in Dijon doing my uh, college placement uh, over there for three months when she was making that march so I was watching from my uh, the, the college dorm room over there sadly the, the desire was in me to join or I would have been marching alongside her the whole way had I been in Ireland um, but because she, like she's only over the road for me anyway so I, I would have joined her from the beginning but um, yeah like it, the, the policymakers, like geez man how, how do they sleep at all at night to allow this thing to, to carry on for so long but I think even as much like as much as there was so a lot of things wrong with me, uh, Luke Flanagan's bill, there was it also afforded the opportunity of opening up the conversation and getting the conversation going, yeah. educating the public on what we mean by cannabis legalization. Yeah. And at the same time, years later, you had Vera Toomey and her campaign. And in a way, I think Luke's bill probably opened up the discussion of how me, how cannabis can help medicinally. Mm-hmm. It, Which it probably did. like had the ripple effect of where we stand today with medicinal cannabis and granting the access to it. 
But, but the outcome of that vote and, and the debates that happened in the dial, I don't know if you've watched them, like I was watching all closely at the time because I was a, a campaigner still even back then. And um, it was just uh, despicable, like they, they weren't really acknowledging it. It was childish, the, the attitudes and the behaviours of, of the prohibitionists, the, the people speaking against it. Um, just, just It was always just completely stigmatising and discriminating against people who use uh, and consume cannabis. It's like there, there's no merit to the medicinal argument like that. That's what the, there was just literally no entertainment of it at all from a minister for health at the time. Uh, I don't know, was it Michal Martin or someone? I can't remember who was the minister for health back then, actually. Um, but again, it's a complete joke. Uh, and then you, you've, it wasn't until it was actually really personalised into young kids. Uh, Tristan Ford was the first one, um, Yvonne Callan's uh, child. And uh, she, she had to spend a year in Colorado, exiled from Ireland. She came back, she got access to cannabis and she, she went away, she, she went quiet. And when she had her access, I think, I don't know what the, the, the reasoning was for her campaign and the style of it and how quiet she went. Oh, you got a big flash there. <laughs> yeah, um, I don't know what happened there. <laughs> um, I don't know. But, but her, her campaign went very quiet afterwards. And I don't know, was it out of fear? Like, was she fearful that maybe the government might take away her access to the cannabis? Had she continued as a campaigner for, for better access for more children? like Tristan but because uh, not long after that she's probably just tired and there like was, it was a long long road and once you kind of get it you just want to put it all behind you and never ever think about the hassle that you went through ever again there was that I, I would agree. I was thinking that as well but then she ran for government for Fine Gael I believe uh, in Skibbereen she, she ran for election there uh, yeah uh, yeah she ran I don't think she was successful in getting a seat um, but I, I'm not too sure what, what the reason was there all, but she went quiet, but, but Vera Toomey then, an amazing warrior, um, she really picked, picked up the, the pace there and uh, the challenge to the government. And, and not only did she pick it up, but once she got access to it, she, she stepped it up even further because there was many other people after her who need access to it too. Um, so, so well done to, to her. And uh, like she, she inspired somebody like you, like that this is... A testament to what that woman has done for the, the cannabis movement in Ireland like is like she, she's woken up a lot of people um to, to what cannabis is and all of that so uh, I'm gonna get a picture of her and put like a halo like Mother Teresa and put it on my wall <laughs> and make it <laughs> no no she, she's an amazing inspirational woman all right to be fair um but, like when you think about how many years ago was Tristan that was 2000 and 26 2014 15? even 2014, 2015, yeah. Six, seven years later, and we still have medical refugees. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Alicia Marr is stuck over in uh, Alicante at the moment. Yeah, Stephen Garland in Barcelona. Another one. Oh, I'm gone blank now. There's a list of them in my head at this stage. Yeah. But they're like the two most vocal that I can think of. Like, Yeah, and and the reason why there isn't more is fair. Fair keeps people quiet. Fair fair of being targeted by the authorities, but but also fair of the, the stigma that's going to come from maybe your community, family and friends who, who might be still in the dark, you know, as educated as I, I've made people around me in my circle, like I, I, I kind of sometimes would be ignorant to, to how other people live within homes where people still re- believe the, the reform madness. Like, like what, what, how would you, uh, what would be your advice to somebody in, in overcoming the stigma of this, say, for a person to engage in a conversation anyway about cannabis? Like, how do you deal with the, the, the mental blocks that will come up there? I don't 
I don't know how to answer that. I'm not a <laughs> therapist. Cross <laughs> um, anything like, in your studies for people. <laughs> own it. Like oh, you're not. Cool. If you're not going to change it, if you're adamant to remain a cannabis user, own it. Yeah. Like, don't let the stigma of the public get to you. Yeah. Yeah, I'd agree. Easier said than done. Just rise above it. Educate, like education is key in reforming cannabis. Yeah. And it, like, I really truly believe that education is key. Mm. How to open the conversation, even starting a conversation about Vera and Ava and medicinal cannabis, or showing a video of how med- how medicinal cannabis can stop the effects of Parkinson's within a couple of seconds. Yeah. That opens up a whole conversation. Yeah. Don't open up a conversation of like prosecutions and legalization and like drugs or cannabis is deadly. It's not bad. You have to kind of put, dip your toe in the water, show them the good bits of it first before you acknowledge any of the bad bits that are there and before expanding the conversation. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a difficult one, right? Uh, to, to kind of not come off as a bit of a loon bag when you start talking about the benefits of cannabis, because there's so many symptoms that could benefit from cannabis access that when you start going on about it, people will become great. There's, there's no plant that can do this much stuff. Like really is there? And it's very hard to believe. There is. Yeah, no, it's incredible. I've gotten so many of my friends to start using um, CBD oil and CBD drops for stress around exams, anxiety, pain, discomfort, insomnia, sleep, like I kind of treat CBD oil as almost like, you know, remember rescue remedy? Yeah. Like that's the way I think of CBD. It's perfect for everything. (laughs) And it can be used for a lot more than that as well. But even the amount of friends that I've convinced to try CBD and they now go, Oh my God, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's great. That little thing is changing the conversation. And these will be people that would have never smoked a joint, would never have smoked cannabis in their life would never even think of using cannabis. I still and now people, they're starting to use CBD. I still meet people who, who when I, I recommend the CBD products to them and stuff, and they're just like, but will it get me high? Oh, gee, <laughs> will it get me high? Will I be stoned? And can I still drive after it now? And all oh, sorts, like, it, it's just, just overwhelming for them. And I'm just like, no, no, it's just going to be like, it's, it's no different from say, chamomile tea almost, you know, chamomile tea could be quite relaxing and, and, and almost sedating in the right environment, the right atmosphere. Um and CBD, it's just maybe a step up from from a chamomile tea. It's just that little bit more um, beneficial and a bit more stronger or a, a medicine because there's just so many uh, compounds within it that just work in a synergistic way to kind of enhance the effects and enhance the way in which they move around the body. Like when, when I was learning about it in the herbal science course, it was, it was just blowing my mind that the complexity that's held within the the plant, like the, the, all the compounds and the way in which they work then within our, our body. Like one one compound, uh, I believe it's it's myrosine, it's a terpene, and that can help the, the transition of uh, some of these kind of cannabinoids like uh, around the body and particular up around the blood-brain barrier. Um, that there seems to be a bit more of a, an enhanced effect up around uh, the, the brain when, when there's more myrosine um, included in the cannabis. Like, uh, like there's just so much to be learned, like... Uh, Oh, it was crazy. I I would love to to just stay there. I'm going back now to college to to do a a master's in the bio bioanalytical chemistry. So I hope to to home in on that kind of stuff on, on terpenes, on full spectrum extracts, on maybe doing analysis or something along those lines. I'll see what I can do. 
Um, Fabulous. Yeah, yeah. And I really look forward to it. That's going to be in UCC. I'll have my foot in the door. I hope that they tried to get a project down there. I'd love to get them growing some cannabis in their uh, greenhouses down there. They've got some kick-ass greenhouses. Like, uh, have you seen them down, down along the walkway? Yeah. Kick-ass. Fabulous. Like, like, I have a project in my mind where we could grow a load of cannabis in there, do, do extracts within the college with the students, have an analyzed again by the students, and have patients come in and benefit then from free access to cannabis extracts and have more students come and work with those patients and record the benefits and do it in a way which is anonymous to the patients where they don't have to bloody register with some private company who's going to gather their data and use it for their capitalistic benefits <laughs> and instead maybe have some public body like our UCC where it's 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 owned by the government in certain respects like and it's a project by the people and maybe we could even de de develop a, an extract through the college that could be sold to patients where the money stays within the, the public system. An Irish you know? one. An yeah. Irish one, yeah. An, an Irish one. And we won't have to get imported. And like, I know they don't have to travel to Holland anymore, but it's still, we have to import. We, we do. And, and they pay an, an enormous sum of money for it. It's, it's absolutely crazy that the cost of medical cannabis uh, in, in Ireland at the moment. I believe uh, it's it's Kenny Tynan. Uh, he, he recently stopped... Uh, I hope he doesn't mind me saying this because he kind of said it himself, but uh, he recently stopped um, on renewing his license uh, for medical cannabis. So he, he had a license giving him access to illegal medical cannabis. And because of the price of it, he, he just isn't renewing it anymore because he can't afford it. And he's gone back. I think it was back three, 4,000 euro, I think. Yeah, almost 4,000 uh, every three months. So nearly 16,000 a year he was paying. Yeah, that's some sum of money to be paying uh, for for a medicine, for for a, pl a plant extract. It should be costing them pennies. They're like, what do you think about it, right? You can go into your cupboard. I, I hope you could anyway, and you're going to open up your your herb section, and you'll find thyme, rosemary, sage, all of these lovely herbs and stuff like that people cook with. I know mine cupboard is full of them downstairs anyway. <laughs> I love cooking and I love my herbs and spices. But when I look at these herbs and spices, I can't help but think that cannabis is just a plant like these. I can buy these jars like 100 grams of oregano and it only costs me two, three euro. I'm like, mm. why is cannabis any different? Like, and the benefits cannabis can give. And imagine you could buy a two or three euro, like a month or a year's worth of your, your cannabis medicines or your cannabis supplements even. Like if you aren't a person who needs a for, say any serious medical condition, you're a person who could probably benefit amazingly from, from just supplementing with, with cannabis and uh in a, in a healthy lifestyle yeah i like even when we're talking about kenny like the fact that he has to pay that out and that there's no reimbursement at all whatsoever from medical card schemes is not or nothing is an absolute disgrace yeah. like anybody that would be on the so like a lower economic income or any they won't be able to afford medicine that can help and change their lives yeah and like that's one thing about medicinal cannabis it does need to be incorporated under the medical card scheme yeah it, it definitely does uh, and and until it gets recognized as a medicine they, they say that's what's keeping it out of there it's not an approved medicine so that that's the biggest barrier to, to it currently it's very interesting as well that um that, like it, there's herbalists in, in ireland so if, if you're a person who takes care of your health in uh, in that kind of a manner where you don't really go to the pharmaceuticals you can go to a herbalist in Ireland and there's a Herbalist Society of Ireland. I'm not too sure about what they, they I think that's the name of the, the association. But they're absent from this argument on cannabis. They're the guys most equipped 
um, in understanding herbal medicines, herbal remedies, extracts, tinctures, and really complex kind of uh, systems within the human body. And the guys are absent. Like, do, do you think that that's stigma, that that keeps them out of this? I can't see any other reason why. Like, the stigma attaches everywhere. They could be worried about ruining their reputation. They could be worried about losing customers or losing patients. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm going to try to chase up some of the herbalists and get them on to so they can maybe defend themselves because I have kind of picked on them a little bit. I, I, I was <laughs> fair is fair, give them a voice. I, I will certainly because I, I do, I, I love the, the work that they do in fairness because I was going to venture down that pathway myself once uh, my, my kind of business thing failed out, but uh, it, it's a, another two-year course I have to do be, to become a qualified herbalist in Ireland so I could actually work with people similar to a GP would work with people. Um but I'll, I'll see if I can get one of them on. But I, I, I do believe it's stigma. I, I, I met one of them. But she was my lecturer uh, in, in college and she, she loved mullen verbascum, which is mullen. Uh, it's just another type of kind of herb. And she was very interested in the antimicrobial properties of it. And I, I, had, I was like trying to explain or I was like, oh, mullen. I was like, but I have the same passion for cannabis. And she was like, oh, yeah, but cannabis. She was like, just too much. Just too much. Uh, itty, what she said, ickiness. That was her wording, ickiness around cannabis. She said like that. Go, yeah, yeah, exactly. Like this is a fucking academic. She was doing her PhD. She, she was my lecturer. Like uh, she was like supervisor year ahead and things like she was overseer of us. And this was the crap I was giving off her ickiness. I'm just like. Like do herbalists study about cannabis in their course? I, we had a herbalist uh, come in and give a talk to us and uh, she, she was talking uh, away and I put up my hand and I was just like, look, uh, what about what do you believe about cannabis? And I was like, and, and herbalist position to, to work with it, I goes, because I believe it's a great tool for, for herbalists to, to have access to um, for, for patients. And, and her thing was, they're just, she said the word stigma herself. She goes, there's just too much stigma. And, uh, and I can't remember what else she said there around cannabis um that she didn't even want to get into it she goes uh, she, she was rather um insulted that i would even ask her the, the question um but because she was presenting in front of the class uh, there was a room of us there she, she was based in water uh, waterford or galway I, i'm not going to name and shame her no because uh i, I don't want to be making enemies myself um but well she might know who she is anyway i don't think she'll ever be listening to this podcast either <laughs> But you know what really pissed me off about her is about six months later on her Facebook page, she had a CBD course. She was doing a CBD evening where people were paying her money to come down and she could talk to them about CBD. And she was unwilling to talk to me as, as a person within the, the research in the academic field, still like paving the way. Like she wasn't there. To, she should have been encouraging me and being like, oh, yes, well done. I'm glad you asked me about this, like, because this is a very interesting one. I can't wait until we can get access to this. She should have been excited about it, but she wasn't. And then I seen it later, like six months later, I was just like, what a crook. She's just hopping on the CBD gravy train now. She, that, that, that's what it does. I was just going to say this because CBD got popular and it was publicly accepted. She probably jumped on the train, as you said. Yeah, I, I, I just I, I just had no like she, she, I just couldn't keep any credibility for, for her anymore after that. But that just, goes to show the if you remove the stigma around CBD and cannabis, the stigma is there no more. Somebody who was very against it then operated CBD courses. Yeah, definitely. And, and to be honest, I was glad that she was doing it because she's a good voice to be having out there, to, to be educating people, because a lot of her audience wouldn't be my audience at all. You know, there's people coming from 
different kind of uh, backgrounds and things like that. A lot of professionals would have been going down to her as well. She has a very good uh, clinic in, in fairness uh, to, to her. So like as bad as my experience was with her at that one encounter, I, I can't let that sour the rest of my encounters with her, I suppose, really. Like everybody uh, makes mistakes, I suppose, and we can forgive them. <laughs> ah, yeah. Forgive and forget. Yeah, definitely. Um, oh, anything in particular um, in, in when you were doing your research that that was uh, of interest to you that stood out? everything <laughs> uh, let me think there's so much where do I start yeah so it's one thing that did kind of stick out in my head and it probably only resonated with me once I kind of went more in depth about it and I went ah it's like a light bulb moment ah that's why I was researching um this whole theory of them versus us and how we outcast others in society yeah. and how once you're a criminal or a cannabis user whichever scenario you're in you're labeled mm -hmm. but there was an interesting theory around it about how society interacts with criminality so this guy called Tannenbaum he has a theory of dra dramatization of evil which I absolutely love and he gave the a scenario of youths playing around, climbing on roofs, kicking footballs, like a window might break because of the football, etc., etc. So to us, that's just kids being kids. It's playing, it's learning, it's everything. Mm -hmm. But to the community, it's evil. It's being delinquent. So he separated the fact that, yes, you have a bad act, but that bad act can actually translate to that's a bad person mm -hmm. so that theory then took me down a rabbit hole of how does that happen in society and in my research shows once you're criminalized you are you are no longer doing a bad act you are now a bad person oh, yeah. so this dramatization is illustrative in the criminal justice system yes you smoked a joint it's a bad thing to do you're a bold boy but then because you're made a criminal of it, you are now a bold person. You are now a bad person. You are now labeled. That label results in stigmatization. And I think the whole dramatization of evil is the one light bulb moment that I had of going, that's how everything clicks into place. Yeah, I, I understand. I, 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 think I call it a blurring of the lines, really, for, for, for me as a cannabis consumer. When I was in court and uh, being there, I was in around all these other people who were up for other crimes, uh, much more serious crimes, robbing cars, stealing things. Um, so I interacted with them and I, 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 could, I didn't ever feel like I was one of them, but I could see how easy that could be. People desire to be a part of a community. Like it's, it's just a primal desire we all have within us. And like when you're a person who finds their way, maybe you're four, maybe 12, 13. I was taught on the podcast just in the 14 News as uh, drug dealers as young as 12 there above, above in Dublin. But like mm. when you're that young and you're not finding your click in, in your community and your place, like, you know, your friends and you find your way into drugs and that's your thing. And next you're in the courts then and you're, you're in with all these other criminals, you know, and, and that's what they are. They're, they're criminals because you broke the law, you're a criminal. So like the, the lines are now blurred. You're in there for cannabis and you haven't ever stolen anything. You haven't ever done anything else. Now you're meeting these other people and they've done that stuff. And next it's like, ah, oh, sure, well, I've got cannabis. That's illegal. Sure, 
why won't I just go into the shop and rob the, the PlayStation games I want? Sure. Or, or, or the, 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 Me the, as well. Yeah, I'm yeah. a criminal already. But yeah, that's go. like the whole court system, the whole criminal system is supposed to deter wrongdoing. Mm-hmm. It's supposed to stop people committing a crime because they're going to be punished. But instead, labeling somebody a criminal, instead, it just fosters the, beha- the, the behavior that it was totally meant to eradicate in the first place. Yeah. You're getting rejected from your community, rejected from your family. You're just going to go further and further into subculture of criminality. You're going to meet more criminals. Like cannabis, they always talk, oh, gateway drug, and I bloody hate that argument. Cannabis is a gateway in terms of criminality only because it's made criminal. It's not a gateway to drug use. It's not a gateway to major crime. It's a gateway to, to criminality because of the stigma and the labeling attached to it. And for no other reason except that. Yeah, no, I'm 100%. When, when I, I seen that on a, a hands first experience uh, myself, we went down to the dealer to, to get some hash. Oh, excuse me. He didn't have any hash there and uh, he had tablets. And I'm sure I, didn't, I had no interest in the tablets, but freaking my, my cousins did. I didn't realize this, but but they, they ended up getting addicted to them afterwards. Like, and they did pretty bad time be, because of that. But it was only be because of the fact that we were down at the door getting hash off the fella who also had tablets, and he offered us an, as an alternative when he didn't have any hash at the time. As they, that's the gate. That's the real gateway. It was prohibition because it was prohibition to put my cousins in front of this fella who had hash. He had coke. He had tablets. He had God only knows what. You know, it's it's scary out there right now what the kids are getting exposed to with all these bloody uh, research chemicals that are becoming available and so cheaply as well. It's it's scary. Uh, it's very scary to be honest. Like like I know a lot of people from my youth and my younger days that would have been around like smoking their few joints or whatever. And like that, there was no weed. There was no hash back in the day. There was no weed in Ireland. Yeah, <laughs> like there was no hash available. There was no nothing. But your man was like. Oh, I have a couple of lines of coke. Oh, I have a couple of ecstasy tablets. I have a couple of these tablets. I have a couple of that tablets. Yeah. For no, like they would have not went out looking for these drugs at all. They would have had no interest in taking these drugs, except for the fact that they had to go to a drug dealer to get hash. They didn't have any. You're offered an alternative. You're young. You're impressionable. You're going to take it. Yeah. Yeah, you don't know any better. That that's that's the bottom line. You really don't know any better at that young age, and you're you're at the, you're vulnerable to these people. I always compare it when when I go when I went to get alcohol as a young person, you queue up outside the the off license, maybe hang around around the corner. You get an adult to go in for you. Can you go in for me? Can you go in for me? <laughs> yeah, you know the situation. I often got a situation where we would be asking for like naggins of vodka and things and, and your man might come out with a six pack and there might be three of us there or something. He's like, there lads, two bottles each and he give us back our money and everything. He would have paid, paid for it for us. And he goes, if I see you down there again, I'm going to tell your sister. <laughs> you know? So he's like, yeah, he gave us our drink, but he also gave us a bit of harm reduction information for it. Like, you know, he was kind of looking out for us. Like, you know, there was no situation where when we were getting the hash where it's like, here, do you want a bit extra? Do you want to sell it to your friends? You know, do you want these other drugs? Do you, would you like to sell those to your friends? Like, that's what's created by prohibition, you know, regulation. You sell that, then I'll give you your bit for free. Yeah, there, there you go. Um, in, in your uh, in your work, was there um, any kind of a particular community or background that would predispose a person to be more vulnerable, um, to be labelled uh, a, a criminal for, for cannabis use? Uh, did, did you look at that uh, at all? 
Um, I don't think there's a specific type. Like there's arguments of the the type of people who use cannabis, but everybody and anybody uses it from people in suits to people in Adidas tracksuits. There, there is no distinction. Did the people who end up with uh, criminal convictions uh, in particular, though, did you find that uh, maybe socioeconomics would uh, play a part of the, the people who get criminalized? Um, maybe they, they can't afford to, to buy the way to the donation boxes and, and things like that. <laughs> like discrimination and uh, profiling, shall we say, it's, it's well proven in police work. Like we all know that a police man or a guard is not going to be suspicious of a man in a suit, but he might be suspicious of a man in an Adidas tracksuit. Like, there's no point me sitting here trying to argue it that it's not demographic specific because it obviously is. Yeah. And I think, like, especially with this adult caution system coming up, it, it leaves a lot to the guard of discretion. That guard of discretion can be influenced by demographics. It can be influenced by what area you're from, what your last name is, who you hang around with. So there's no point me here, sitting here saying that it's not going to happen because it will happen and it does happen. But I did find that a lot of communities in my research anyway, a lot of communities that would be on the, the lower scale of society, shall we say, mm-hmm. would be predisposed in a way to stigmatization. They don't want a drug user in their neighborhood. I think where's my facts and figures? Two thirds of people in Ireland didn't want a drug user in their neighborhood. That went up to like 60, 70% in some areas. But they wouldn't view a person smoking cigarettes or drinking alcohol as a drug user then? No, and they don't want a drug user in their neighborhood because if it is a certain type of neighborhood or a certain demographic of people, that stigmatization of the one or two drug users then attaches to the whole community and they're all tarred with the same brush. You come from a certain area, you must be trouble. Regardless if you've done that and wrong, you're fighting an uphill battle from day one. Yeah, we have a few of those areas in Cork for sure um, where you mentioned you're from there and it's just like, oh. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. let me search pocket. you. <laughs> no, yeah, that, that, that too, yeah. Um, especially with, with the guards anyway. That, that was my own experience. Uh, I hung around up in the Glen with my, my cousins and stuff a, a lot. And uh, my, my uncle as well, was uh, a, a, he sold hash and... Um, I believe then that because I was with my cousin, uh, we, we were targeted. And uh, I, I can remember one time being in the, the station, being strip searched uh, by two guards. And um, they, they, they straight up asked me, it was like, look, we know you're getting the hash off your, your uncle. Just tell us like you're getting off him and uh, tell us where it is what, and all of this stuff. And I was just like, look, lads, I, I don't know what you're on about at all. I was like, I'm just back from Amsterdam. And that's where I got that from. I was like, I brought it back with me. And um, I, I kind of wouldn't give them anything, but they put you under pressure and like they, they, they were aware. And they, me and my cousin, we were only like 17 at the time. I, I wasn't even aware that, that that strip search was fucking illegal, that they shouldn't have brought us back to the guard station at all. We, we were underage. Um, but, but sadly, I just wasn't educated on, on this stuff at all. Like it, my parents should have been informed. They should have been called up to the guard station. But these guards, they just abused our powers, like straight up abused our powers um and we were victim to that as, as young kids it's it was crazy and, and they didn't mind climbing up the career career ladder and it's like asher who's who's this young fella he's just a scumbag from the, the north side there from this bloody area whatever <laughs> you know yeah you're, you're bottom of the list of priorities like but even when you think of cannabis users who don't smoke anymore they're i've heard a few stories and them still getting targeted stopped searched what have you stop in your car i know you you had it once or twice i'm going to annoy you 
because now I think I'm going to find it every time I stop you. Good for the guards' figures and their their end of year reports and everything else. But but I suppose that is police work at the end of the day. Yeah, it just doesn't work in our favor in terms of cannabis. Yeah, I just don't understand that argument, though. Like, uh, they're just doing their job. And it's just when when you're a human being in front of another human being and you're trying to relate to them and explain to them, look, where, where's my victim? What have I done wrong? The system is is bad. You know, you're a pawn in this. Like, do something. You, you, you've you did all of the power of discretion. All guarantee of the power of discretion. Like, this argument that they're just doing their job. Like, when you're at the side of the road and the guard catches you with a personal amount of cannabis and he knows when he brings you to court that all it's going to amount to is, like, some sort of a slap on the wrist, a donation to the charity box. Like, why are they even bothered doing the paperwork? Why why are they bothered wasting the time of the DPP, wasting the time of the courts, wasting our taxpayers' money, the free legal aid, all of this stuff? I've brought this argument up to the guards at the side of the road and I'm just doing my job. Yeah, like it costs thousands and thousands to bring somebody to court, get them into court, free legal aid, everything Mm -hmm. else, as you said, for what, a couple of hundred quid in the poor box at the end of the day? It's costing the state more than we're giving back in a fine. It's an unbalanced punishment. Like there there is no justification for it. But I, I presume that guards, like every other business or company, will have targets that they have to meet and if they have so many drug arrests or so many drug convictions under their belt, then they have better fingers than everybody else. And yeah, that's sad though that these numbers though are, are people like these are people's lives that, that are being affected just so these guys can reach their, their targets. And um, we had a banner at uh, one of our students for sensible drug policy, uh, our national conference, I believe it was in um, 2014 or 2015. I can't remember which year it was, but it was in NUIG and it was a big, huge banner. And it was a quarter of a million drug users treated by Gardaí because effectively, like the, the drug users are harming themselves. They're a victim of their own crime. And by the Gardaí criminalizing them, they're actually treating them like treating them like the Gardaí are now health professionals in, in certain respects. Like when, when they're criminalizing you, they're, they're treating you. Uh, it was just a, an interesting way, way to look at it. They're like, well, why is it that if a person uses drugs that why can't they just go to a health professional? Why is it our guardy? But like not all drug use is addiction. Not all drug use needs oh. a medical intervention. Like 80% oh. of the cases that came in front of the Drugs Dissuasion Commission in Portugal for cannabis were scrapped because there was no evidence of addiction, no evidence that the person needed any sort of intervention or any sort of help. Yeah. John, another thing on the, the Portuguese uh, one, is um graham uh graham devaro who uh we, we kind of bought no um he was talking about it uh he was in the azores islands i believe and he was speaking to some of the locals about the decriminalization and uh, he was like oh isn't it great uh you don't get criminalized uh, for your cannabis use now and he was saying that a lot of the young people there still get targeted by by the authorities there because they're still Kind of, uh, they they still take the cannabis off them. They they can still find them. You know, there's these little fines. There's still police contact. Like the policeman yeah. is your first point of contact. So you're there still you being go. criminalized from the get go. Like there you go. So so as well as like so while we will stout our pout on about the 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 benefits of um of cannabis uh, or sorry of decriminalization in Portugal, that the locals they're actually they don't see it that way because like as the the young people still. If you're a skater, let's say, like, you know, if you're from a certain community, you know, that the authorities will still target you as a person who's likely to have drugs, cannabis. 
maybe you know so like it I always am very careful about when I talk about Portugal. I, I always say that like it's it's not a perfect model. There's still flaws it's not. in it. It's good. Don't get me wrong. Like, like the can yeah. card, it's good, but there's flaws. It's like why yeah. why isn't there why why isn't there proper access? You know, if you're a heroin addict um and you're registered and all of this stuff, why in Portugal can you not just go into a, a, a pharmacy and get diamorphine, which is heroin? You can go in and you can get uh the, the other the, the methadone and stuff like that. But you can't go in and get diamorphine, as as far as I'm aware. Anyway, I don't believe that they they, they actually give it in in Portugal. Um, I was actually reading somewhere. I read that somewhere that some country were going to try and give out diamorphine through their pharmacies. Yeah, that there's uh, Switzerland uh, have been doing. Switzerland, it. that's where it was. Yeah. Yeah, Switzerland have been doing it for a while now. That they, I don't do believe they do it through their pharmacies, but maybe that's a, a new development that you were reading. Um, but what they have over there are. Um, drug uh, injection sites uh, I believe or, or maybe um, drug consumption rooms I can't whatever whatever they call it um, but basically where people they can register as a person who's addicted to, to diamorphine to heroin they can go in in the morning they, they get their their diamorphine prescription they, they get it administered and then they can go off and uh, maybe they might stay there within the clinic or they might go off and actually go about their, their daily jobs because to work yeah, but because some people actually, the, the misconception there is you, you use heroin and you're off your head and stuff like that. For some people, actually, you know, it's, it can be just numbing pains and it could be just allowing them to just get on with their daily life and stuff like that. So it's it's, it's, a, it's a very complicated one. You know, we, we can't have these uh, these judgments of people who use heroin. There's so many different reasons why people would get to that point and to be using heroin. And the, the, the Swiss system is an amazing one. Like they, they had incredible problems back in, uh, I don't know, was it the 70s, 80s? Uh, they, they had a place there that, that was dubbed Needle Park because all of the heroin addicts would uh, congregate in that area because uh, the needle bins, I believe, were, were there. And then what happened afterwards? Responsible like, drug use. Yeah, yeah no. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. At least uh, they're disposing of them. Yeah, no, but but that was the problem. They, they weren't really disposing of them uh, properly uh, because some of the times, look, these people, when they inject the drugs, they, they mightn't be very responsible. So some of them don't even take care of their own basic nutritional needs, like never mind, say, clean up after themselves. Like So it's it's a lot to be expected of a person in that situation. And the authorities there, they acknowledge that and they set up the drug consumption room. And they also then after that said, look, to sort out the fact that uh, there were no opening up where people can come in and inject but we don't want the dealers to come to the area and to be selling the heroin uh, we're going to give it to them and it, and it was an amazing results like uh, it really sorted things out so uh, it, like i know we're gone off the topic of cannabis but on we, that i remember not. reading that the they were saying since they set up the program a lot of people were saying like oh sure you're just facilitating lifetime use of heroin and they said, no, we only have maybe five or 10 people that are still using heroin from the start of the project. Yeah. Every every person that used heroin went in and they slowly came down on their dose okay, and they eventually came off it. Interesting. Yeah, I was I thought I read actually that they had um, all of the, the people who were uh, on the first uh, list cleared off it, that they all had kicked the habit. Um, but but even if they had got it down to five, like that, that's an achievement. Yeah, I think it's very, very few that are there, like since the kind of start of the project. Exactly. Or even the first couple of years of the project, even. Exactly. But everyone, they just reduce their dosage. They do. I think what they do very well for these people is they, 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 they reinstill the importance of these people, their, their, their self-worth in society and community and stuff like 
why they stigmatizing them yeah. so because all along they're stigmatized you know they're, they're led to believe you know you're just an addict you're you're this you're that all of these labels we put on them rather than the fact that no you're actually you're just a sick person come here and I, I give you a hug you need a hug some of the times these people just never been hugged as kids and sadly they grow up and bloody end up injecting drugs because they're just absent the love all of their life like, like that that's just one re- on the, the reasons there's many there's fucking many um and it's just a lot, a lot of kind of addictive drug use or kind of bad drug use and i don't really want to use the term bad but it all stems from trauma yeah. it, like there's something underneath it that it, it you're trying to block out or you're you're trying to forget or trying to numb a lot of the the drug use the addictive drug use or the bad drug use it does come Temple from trauma use, yeah. unless you treat that trauma you're not going to be able to treat the the drug use because even to just bring it back to the cannabis, like I will acknowledge the fact that there is people out there who, who one of addictive personalities, but two have uh, who had traumatic uh, experience before and they, they might tend to abuse things then because of that. Like, and, and it doesn't it's not just cannabis. It could be other things you know, that they can get into some sort of a sport hobby. And that's the way of just dealing with that past trauma of just just know this is just their focus on life. And that allows that's them their outlet. They're, they're, they're exactly like you know, and for some people said you know they, they find a way to to addictive and dangerous drugs like heroin and and stuff like that but but even cannabis can be one of those drugs that that can be abused you know people can and i, I always will say it that people can abuse it but mm. but the effects of that abuse <laughs> they're not as as drastic as heroin which can result in death the, the abuse of cannabis might just lead you to staying at home and being a bit of a, a, a hermit watching netflix <laughs> for 20 hours <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's not that bad, but it's it's there. But Gaining a few pounds from the munchies, for sure. We, yeah. can, we can forgive that. I'm, I'm sure there's people out there who've been addicted to the heroin or even gambling who, who would say like, yeah, I would probably much rather be addicted to cannabis. That wouldn't have been as bad. <laughs> you know, I wouldn't have gambled the house away. <laughs> yeah. yeah. There's a lot less consequences to cannabis use than there would be to an awful lot of other addictions out there. Yeah, no, certainly there is. Um Going forward, I suppose, uh, 2021, I, I think there's a lot of uh, hope to be held there for the cannabis community. Um, the Gino Kenny's bill, I, I've yet to see it or, or be made aware of, uh, aware of what's actually in it. But, um, I don't think it's published yet because I tried to, I had a nose around the internet for it. No, it's it's, it's not out there just yet. I, I hope they, they get a sight of it soon, um, but but it's not out there yet. But, but could I ask, um, like, if cannabis was to be say if there was to be legalized uh, by Gino Kenny's bill um how best could we address the the harms that were done but by the criminalization um for for people what would in your opinion would be the best thing we could do there to, to re- redress these people and, and to kind of uh start undoing the, those that stigmatization the criminalization aspect of it you know the everybody who got caught with it was an addict kind of thing I don't think it's something that's going to change overnight. Like even if it, even if cannabis is legalized in Ireland, the stigmatization is not going to go away tomorrow morning. It's not like flicking a light switch and everything is forgotten about. It is going to take a couple of years for that stigma to go away because it is ingrained in the public that it is such a bad thing. But I think once the, once it is legalized and once the, the legitimate kind of criminal label is taken away the public will no longer be legitimized in holding their bad views mm-hmm. it's not illegal what are you giving out about yeah like i can imagine um during prohibition in america there was often bad thoughts like oh you're bad because you drink it was often stigmatized but mm. 
how many years did it take for alcohol to not be stigmatized as a bad substance anymore? That's true, yeah. Well, it, it is going to take a while, but I think taking away the, the criminalization of it is highly important. And I think once they see that, the public see that it's not as bad as they thought, if it is legalized, that is, it's not as bad as they thought. Oh, you man down the road has a couple of plants or you, you one up the road smokes a they're actually okay. I know her years. I know him years. He's not a bad person. That will slowly start to shift public attitudes and they, the public attitudes will then kind of not see people as a stigmatized cannabis user anymore. Yeah. But it is starting to become socially acceptable. Like attitudes in the last three years, especially have changed an awful lot. Yeah, no, and, and thanks to the people like Vera Toomey coming out and uh, Kenny Tynan and all of the other campaigners, Alicia Maher, you know, that they're really helping. And, and it's kind of really sad in one way that, that it's the patients who have to, to be the people out there that, to normalise this. And like even my own campaign all along when I started getting criminalised, I was trying to just use my own personal experience as people should in society and in a democracy, use your personal experience to, to help improve society. So People don't have to follow in the footpaths or footsteps of yourself and uh, go through the same harm and you know, t- mental torture and all of that. And, and sadly, uh, my, my argument wasn't worthy because sure, you're just a cannabis user. That That's kind of and even I get that myself. I do that to myself sometimes. I'm just like, oh, sure. Uh, I, I put like bear to me, I put Alicia and I put all these patients on a pedestal, you know, and I use them as people to argue for. And I kind of dismiss my own argument but like it's it's very valid too because like my, my own use of cannabis brought benefit to my life and enabled me to, to live a better quality of life it, it never was a detriment to, to my quality of life until I got caught with it um but but still you know I I always would put these people before my own argument uh and I, I hate that because it's like, almost like their reason is more valid than mine yeah yeah it is and, yeah. and I think that it comes back to the stigma really because my use it labels recreational but what the fuck therapeutic therapeutic yeah. use not recreational use therapeutic I know, I, I know. Like, <laughs> there's so many uses like uh, I, I would have seen cannabis as a tool it's, it's a multifaceted tool it's it's like a Swiss army knife you know of sorts it can be used for so many bloody reasons uh, it can be used for like I know people who do jujitsu and, and I do jujitsu myself, which is kind of mental chess, but with your human bodies, like where you're just engaging uh, in just a, a player. Like, but when you consume cannabis, it allows you to, to get into a flow state. It just improves the the enjoyment and uh, just your presence uh, within that, that, that activity. And for so much more, when I go running, I get up in the morning and I go for a, a nice long run, sometimes an hour, two hours. And uh, I like to have a bowl, a uh, hit of cannabis, like, and it's counterproductive. You would think like smoking cannabis, like, but like it hasn't hindered my, my cardio capacity and my ability to go out and run. And in fact, in the mental state I achieve while I'm, I'm on those runs, it's, it's so much better when I have cannabis and I go running without it too. And I can still achieve those states, but sometimes just the, the cannabis allows you to get there a bit sooner <laughs> in, in certain ways. So it's it, that would find cannabis actually helps them get their work done helps them study helps them run helps them do yoga um i think you were on about actually recently um the he used cannabis for creative purposes as a mu- musician or an artist or something oh there, there's so many uh he got caught with plants oh i'm that- sure you were on about was that the, the the guy down in West Cork? Was it the yes, the, the, yes. The, uh, the musician from West Cork? I, I believe he yeah. was uh, an older gentleman too. 
Um, mm. I, I trying to, to find him actually to get in touch with him to see if I could have a chat with him on the podcast. Yeah, but but he got caught with growing plants. Yeah, that's right. And uh, and, and he was using cannabis. He said because of uh, his creative purposes. Um, yeah. I, I've, I have a buddy. He's a Rastafarian, uh, Joseph, and um, again he, he talks about the fact when he he was brought to court a, a couple of times, and he's used the religious argument that that he uses cannabis because of uh, it's a religious sacrament to him and enables him to have uh, a closer communication or feeling of engagement there with, with uh, the, the higher powers and stuff when he's praying and um that that's been kind of respected there by, by the authorities that the guards don't don't bother him for some reason i haven't seen him getting in trouble like and uh he, he's a bit reluctant uh, to getting engaged in the, the activism too because uh, he has a very he's been left very, alone <laughs> why would you why would you rock the boat <laughs> he's been left alone but he has a very good well-paying job as well since he's graduated college so i reckon it would jeopardize that too despite the fact he's an amazing worker he's impeccable like he's his dedication to his job like what a man like he, he is top level like I, I would highly recommend him he's a, he's an engineer and uh oh, oh, like an amazing guy like he would not let you down like if he has a job to do committed um but he loves cannabis use too like he would probably smoke before work after work during work maybe um but it doesn't impact impact upon his ability to do his job which is uh which is a testament to the guy like really but sadly, but you know, like that goes to show that the the public's image of cannabis users is the the Cheech and Chong type stoner in a room filled with smoke and that absolutely don't do nothing. That's, That's completely the opposite in reality. Like it's going to be hard to break. You're a normal everyday person. But they're all closeted. That that's the biggest issue we have is they're all closeted. Like that, I always use the, the gay community as an amazing example that the cannabis community has to learn from um, in order to achieve the respect in society that they, they've achieved. Because like you look in Irish society only 20 years ago, 30 years, yeah, 20 years ago even, if you talked about the fact of uh, gay, gay marriage or uh, the likes of that in Ireland, people are like, nah, that's never going to happen. It was illegal till 1993. Yeah, but, oh, exactly. You know, it, like. it, this is the sort of thing, you know, so we have to learn from them, like the, the coming out of the closet. This was the thing I have to encourage, but it's so hard to do that when people will lose jobs if they come out of the closet. So what I was going to get to then in that, do you, do you think, you know, Kenny's bill, if it was to be put forward and supported and uh, whatever, go through the rings and come into the play, um, do, do you think that then will affect uh a business's ability to test an employee for cannabis well if cannabis is legal then i can't see how a workplace could stand on a policy that punishes legal behavior very interesting yeah you're like at the end of the day you still have freedom to do what whatever you want to do within the confines of the law so once it's legal i i find it hard to see how a company will be able to stand over telling you what you can and can't do outside of working hours in your private home sure. fair enough do not be under the influence while you work same goes for alcohol yeah excellent yeah so that would be interesting all right the grounds there for people so say gina kenny's bill now currently and say if you're working in the likes of let's say johnson johnson for example and you support the Facebook campaign to, to have cannabis legalized and you lose a job then as, as a result of that. Like, is there grounds there then for, for unfair dismissal? You know, um, but because some people are worried that like even liking a post on Facebook is going to result in them being brought before HR and getting fired. But like, it depends what's in your contract. I can't state something okay. like blanket, like everything will obviously depend on an employment contract, but 
like unless the pharmaceutical company is like highly against cannabis or they have like a very strong anti-cannabis policy i can't see what you do in your private life affecting your work life yeah i can't see any reason why they might have a vested interest in um in keeping cannabis illegal or all the, the, the pharmaceutical companies. I don't think they'll benefit from keeping cannabis illegal or would they? <laughs> that's, that's a chat for another podcast, I think. Yeah, yeah. No, but, but we, we, Pharma uh, versus cannabis. We have an incredible amount of people in Ireland tied up though in that workforce. Like I know a lot of people, I know one guy in particular who's in the, the back of my mind and uh, he, he suffers uh, with back pain and he suffered a work accident and uh, he could really sue the company and he believes that he's, He's using cannabis now while he's working there and it really helps with his, uh, with his back pain. And uh, he gets drug tested every year. And uh, when the drug test comes up, he actually has to give up cannabis kind of when that period is, is coming around. Uh, and uh, he, he'd be going through serious pain then during that period. Um, the, the pharmaceuticals don't really do anything for him. Um, that they, they, they just diminish his quality of life really to make him kind of lethargic and, and all of this kind of stuff. Like it's, it's not a good situation to be in when he's on him, he says. Um, but, he, but a lot of these kind of employers, they wouldn't draw a distinction between impairment and use. So once you're a cannabis yeah. user, user, it will show a positive on a test. But that doesn't state that you're actually under impairment at work. Yeah. Similar with uh, drug driving. Yeah. You can have a joint on a Friday. You can drive on a Monday. You're caught. You are now classed as an impaired driver. Yeah. Well, no, actually, they, they make the uh, distinctions there in the law. So if you're an impaired driver by the, the guard's definition of whatever an impaired driver is, you actually can get a harsher punishment. So the presence of a drug in your system is just punishment. Uh, and it's it's like you're you're under the influence. Yes, under the influence. Sorry, under that's the word I was looking for. An, an impairment then is actually a step up. Like it's it's like they witness where well, you're actually swerving on the road or something, yeah. you know, something like that. Uh that would be impairment then. So there's they, they actually this this they distinguish between those two things in the law, which is interesting. So they're acknowledging the fact that a person when is they that dis- is that distinction actually true though? Like if you have a joint on a Friday, as I said, you drive a car on a Monday, you're still getting done for drug driving. Oh yeah, yeah. Regardless of impairment level. That that's what they're saying under the influence. Yeah. It's just the wording of the law. Driving under the influence is not as bad as uh, as driving it. Lesser in, punishment more than anything. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Like it's the like to the severity of it because you have to, to look at it. I suppose for drunk driving now in in Ireland, you could have a glass of wine or two maybe on a on a Saturday night and maybe wake up really early on the Sunday morning. Maybe you have to go to the seven o'clock mass or something, and you get bagged on the way. Like you know, there you are and just like oh shit, I didn't even know I was over the limit. But because they've set it so small, you really could be over the limit the, the next morning. Even for alcohol now, in, in that regard, like. So did they make that distinction then like, oh, well, this person was just, it was just DUI. They, they weren't drunk driving up to me. You yeah. Know? They, they weren't falling out of the car, <laughs> you, know? you know? So they make that distinction there in the law, like even for alcohol, but they do it for drug driving too. But it's, it's crazy, like how low they've set the bar. Like, like Ireland is the lowest in, in the world, I believe. Like it's one nanogram per milliliter of blood of THC. And then it's like 10 for the other metabolites. But um, we won't get into that. Yeah. No, like I, I, that's beyond. I'm, I'll stay with the law. You can do the science part. <laughs> <laughs> like I've heard horror stories of, like people, of people getting prosecuted for drug driving, and I was looking into it, and there's, there's a lot of um, skepticism around those tests that they do on the side of the road. Like, oh, is it yeah. dra- dragon or what are they called? Drag or five thousand? Yeah. <laughs> 
a lot of skepticism of accuracy mm-hmm. regarding those tests. A lot of skepticism, especially in terms of cannabis. Yeah. And even right now with the, the cold weather we're experiencing, that, that's where the legitimacy of the, the results really comes into play. So that, that's for anybody out there listening. If you've got bagged over the last week where the weather was really cold, uh, the accuracy of those is it's not valid. Um, below four degrees, I think, or something is the, the cutoff point. I didn't know yeah, that now. If they're up, yeah, so they have to operate them in the back of the, the Jeep. So they have to keep it like in somewhat of a controlled environment, but it's not valid. Like the, you, you could ask for the evidence to, in court, like to show me the evidence that that machine was operating within a thing because I've evidence to say the temperature was this that night and you operated it outside. Um, they have the guidelines, but then they have to operate in. Like. Yeah, but where you're really screwed is, is on the blood analysis afterwards. But <laughs> But speaking of like your friend with the drug testing and with the blood testing, the if you're a regular smoker, it's going to stay in your system a lot longer than somebody that randomly had a joint on a Friday. That's right. Yeah. So if you're a regular smoker, you have your joint or two every night or you have a bit of cannabis every night, it's going to stay, it can stay in your system up to six weeks. Yeah, yeah. Or up to three months. Like, some people, depending on your level of activity and your metabolism. Yeah. It, it's scary. You can be punished for something weeks later yeah yeah no and in terms of having it in your body there, there was a story i can remember reading uh, back in 2017 and it's still that's how impactful it was by it but it was a, a dj a british dj who had uh, been home for christmas time and he'd been like he said that he was in the presence of somebody who had been smoking cannabis but when he arrived back uh, i think it was to the united arab emirates uh, dubai maybe somewhere like that or i can't remember one of those countries anyway and uh, they, they'd done him for having cannabis in his system. Like, it, yeah, for having cannabis in his system, he got done for it. It, it was crazy. Um, I remember reading it. Maybe there would have been something there in, in, in light of uh, some action, like he might have had something before. But it was over the amount that was in his system. It was crazy, like, that there was that bad. Yeah, like, I've heard of horror stories of people testing positive for cannabis on the side of the road with the drug testing who have literally just been around cannabis, who hasn't consumed, who've just been in a room with cannabis smokers. They go, they get their blood test, there's nothing in their blood. Yeah. It's just purely, it shows up in the saliva because they've been in the presence of cannabis users. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's, it's, it's crazy to, to think. Uh, yeah, um, Ali, um, anything to add, I suppose, because uh, I, I've gotten through my, my list of questions that I did have, yeah, because... Uh, it's been it has been great to talk with you. I definitely think it's a it's great what you've done there with, with the looking into that particular field of research and to be getting vocal and supporting the, the cause for cannabis. Actually, one question I do have for you is um, I, I know you use CBD and stuff and it's OK if you don't want to answer this question at all. But um, what, what's your own experience with uh, cannabis or marijuana? <laughs> <laughs> like like a lot of people in Ireland like I used it when I was younger mm-hmm. teenage years um I've never had a bad experience on it like I've, I've never a couple of my friends they'd still smoke it they'd still I have nothing against it work away puff around me I have no problems with it I never had a bad experience with it like I'm talking back in the day where you'd have your, your three Rizlas and they're all trying to hide from the rain <laughs> under a jacket, trying to burn your hash in the wind. <laughs> Happy days. But, like, I have no problem with it. I've never, ever, ever seen a bad side effect or a bad thing happen from cannabis. I've never seen people fight with cannabis. I have never seen people getting angry with cannabis. 
like cannabis compared to alcohol (laughs) it drives me mad it absolutely drives me mad when you think of the societal consequences that come from alcohol compared to what comes from cannabis and it's 2021 and we're still fighting for legalization and access yeah uh, the mind boggles you feel like banging your head off the wall sometimes when when it comes to communicating with these uh policy makers like uh, i i just i've sent emails to him i've sent text to him like i've talked to him at my doorstep and it, you're just not getting through to him at all like especially these party people so we've Fine Gael, Fine Foyle and the green party you know who are in government yep they're, they're just like stone walls when it comes to drug policy you're not getting anything past them like even the green party did a good piece of uh did, did a good i wouldn't say they did an okay drug policy document uh especially when it they came were to trying at least they were trying at least but i yeah. think it was all just for show um but because when it came to the the government formation talks when did they folded like not about our oh you don't want to legalize cannabis grand we, we don't really care either like we're happy to get into government with you and we, we leave that one what's alone that old, what's that old word my grandmother uses Turncoats, I think, is a good uh, yeah. <laughs> a good yeah. analogy for the Green Party. Oh, yeah. Full they, promises. I, I know there's people out there raging now, uh, cannabis community supporters like who voted for the Green Green Party just solely on that reason alone. They thought, mm-hmm. oh, these are the guys who are going to get it done for us. Like, let's vote Green Party. Yeah. They, they, man, what 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 betrayal? I know so many are. people who voted for them purely on their stance of cannabis yeah. and their promise of a citizens' assembly. Yeah. All went out the window, and 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 the citizens' assembly sure did. They, 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 there was a little reference with there recently, and they, they're using the uh, coronavirus now as a scapegoat uh, at the moment for holding it. Um, but meanwhile, sure, I can go to court. There's no the, the coronavirus is grand there. Like I can go down to court and attend court with up to, I don't know, is there nearly fifty other people inside in the courtroom? Like that's crazy. There's the, the a people... citizens' assembly currently running on, I think, gender issues. That, so that, they right. are still running as citizens' assembly. So COVID is not an excuse. That that's right. Actually, I was reading about that. I believe they they've finished that now. Um, in certain respects, they've done anyway. it already over Zoom and everything else. They've done it all over Zoom and everything. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Like so, they were so, able to do it for this and uh, and a very. You look at the issue like gender equality and stuff, and I'm not saying there's not gender equality in our society, but nobody's getting locked up for it you know there's not parents walking from Cork to Dublin to get access to the, the, the products that could be made from this bloody plant um, and where's the urgency like there's no urgency from these guys like really gender equality and again I'm not trying to downplay gender equality I'm not saying there's not I'm just saying why, why can they do one and not the other like you know it's, yeah. it's, it's what's going on out there you can't help but to get, get conspiratorial about it really like and think there's some Vested interests out there at play, you know. Greece. Oh, I've been down many rabbit holes. <laughs> oh, you, you, can, you don't blame people, really, though. Like, you know, thinking that big pharma is paying our government to keep it illegal or something. You know, there, there is people who really do believe that that the pharma are out there and actively working against this. I, I don't think there is any real active thing. I think it's just the way in which things fell into place over the years. I think the original prohibitionists, like the, the Randolph Horse and uh, the, these fucking racist guys in america who really taught this up they taught it out really well they demonized the plant amazingly like they done incredible because at the time brilliant marketing <laughs> when you think of it marketing and sales fantastic yeah because when you look at it like in order to effectively stigmatize <laughs> cannabis at the time they needed to, to relabel it and uh, how they done it was marijuana and that that, that was it that that now 
it was this new thing because at the time in a lot of people's cupboards, medicine cabinets, they had cannabis medicines still laying around. And um, that by calling it marijuana, they were able to distinguish this, or yeah, to kind of distinguish it between that medicine and this kind of de- this devil's lettuce that uh, the Mexicans and the blacks are using. And then we fast forward to the day, today that that same policies by these same racists, these same misogynists, like the, the same like ah, oh, there's so many things I could call them, but I, I won't even go down there. But it's still in place. And it's still being supported by these same brain dead body politicians, like where they're just not supporting the arguments that uh, prohibition is a bloody, it's a menace in our society. It's creating, it's creating the, the, the Hutches, the Kinnahans, like the guys who killed Veronica Guerin, like that, that, that John Gilligan's of Ireland. They wouldn't have existed if it wasn't for drug prohibition. I completely agree. And like even with decriminalization, it's not a, a solve all solution. You're still relying on a criminal market. So you're still giving money to criminals. Like if you look across the water to America, the amount of money that was made in 2020 in the cannabis markets, yeah. like I think it was Arizona or something alone had like a billion dollars in 2020. Two major cannabis companies in Canada merged in like a billion dollar deal. There is a lot of money to be made in cannabis. And I think especially like with the government as well, if you're trying to kind of advance reform, you have to go in with figures because at the end of the day, the the government are only interested in money and what's coming into the revenue. Going in with moral arguments of criminalization and stigma as much as it's my research area and as much as I love it, it, it might tug on a couple of heartstrings, but it's not going to change the world. You have to go in with rock hard science, rock hard business proposals. Look how much money the revenue can make from this. Yeah. Look how much money you're going to save not criminalizing people. And look what money you can make in taxes when you legalize and regulate it. Yeah. And at the end of the day, I think the governments will only respond to money more than sympathetic moral arguments from people. Uh, on, on that particular topic on, on money and stuff because when, when that comes up and I, I hear this argument you know an awful lot you know you have to show the government how much money can be made from it but in in that right if, if we were to have if Gino Kenny's bill was uh, to, to go past now in the morning and we have these big companies you mentioned Aurora, Tillery and stuff like and they're very much interested in the recreational cannabis market these, these are massive companies with billions behind them you know they can flood our market here with cannabis that will it'll be very hard to compete with really like uh, as as a local person so say myself now even particularly um if cannabis was legalized i got a license i was able to produce it how in the hell can i compete with the likes of tillery with aurora who have billions now behind them and i'm coming at it as a person who you know i've been an activist all my time i spent most of my time kind of just involved in campaigning activism i haven't built up a big massive pool of money behind me that i can just invest into a business as such um so we're really on the back foot so so how would you feel if uh policy it was made in a way to to address that um that they give an advantage there to people like myself and other people who have been criminalized for their cannabis use to to be the the main players within the irish industry you know to, to support the, the irish uh the, the, the indigenous uh kind of uh people who, who would set up these organizations are, are businesses. So what I was kind of proposing would mean for myself anyway, I'd be very much interested in setting up a, a non-profit type of cannabis collective where the cannabis is grown by the community for the community and it's sold to the community at a, as a, at a very affordable price and any profits then are staying within the community. 
you pay wages to people who run in the, the operation, the grows, the, the processing and the selling at the retail level. And then any extra money at the end of the year is put back into the community in terms of like some kick-ass parties or supporting charity events or, or buying parks and stuff like that. Like, you know, that would be a much better way or uh, as opposed to some Canadian company just coming and selling cheap cannabis to, to people and uh, our government just uh, reeling in taxes then off consumerism. Because I think that would be like when we go from one pub health policy prohibition, which is terrible for public health, and then we legalize it. I, I think it would be terrible for public health if it's legalized for profit reasons. Like if profit mm-hmm. is the motive, in order to drive up profit, you have to drive up consumerism, essentially, because you don't have profit if you don't have consumers. And I think that's going to be, the, if that's the main motivator of our government, sadly, I think our policies then are, are going to be not good for the community. It, it'll be almost like what happened in Canada, almost. Um, in Canada, they made a mess of it. They cut out the, the grassroots community. So if you were a grower in Canada when it was illegal, when it was made legal, it was the next impossible for you to, to get a license to grow and to sell to the people who you were growing and selling to all along. So therefore, you just stayed illegal and you just retained your, your business. Uh, I interviewed Dana Larson, who operates uh, an illegal cannabis dispensary in Canada um, because uh, it's just easier to operate in the, the illegal uh, uh, environment and it's, it's so difficult to actually get a legal dispensary over there. Mm-hmm. So it's a real mess, but it was profit that motivated them over there. And it was big business that, that pushed the policies that, that shaped the industry and it made a complete mess of it. So it's... Like there's a couple of ways that you can approach it. Like in certain states in America, when it was first made legal and they needed to open shops and they needed people to grow it and to sell it. There's, I can't remember the name of the state, but there's one or two states that went, who else knows how to grow, cultivate, sell, cannabis better than the people who we have convicted (laughs) so they kind of done a project of right let's get the people who we convicted of cultivation and sale and supply of cannabis get them involved give them a license let them sell it because at this stage it was in the the early days they're the only ones with any sort of expertise for this and so far it worked out well I've watched a couple of kind of YouTube interviews of um, people saying like it completely changed my life I was no longer a criminal I was now accepted into the community I had a job I had my own business mm-hmm. I can then employ ex-convicts give them a job give them another chance it's interesting it's like actually they, they develop interest and skills as in the life as a drug dealer and uh, I've talked to many in my time and when I tried to, to, to transfer their skills that they've done in, in that illegal job over to the real world they're, they're blown away they're like, what do you mean I know stock management? What do you mean I know how to, to mark up prices and stuff? Like, what do you mean? I know? Just like, <laughs> what do you do? <laughs> That's exactly what you're doing. Like. Yeah. So they're, they're blown away by, by this kind of thinking. Because, like, again, the stigma, they, they can't relate to that kind of thing because what they're doing is dingy, it's dark, it's illegal. Um, and and they, they can't transfer those skills over there. But they do have them. Like, and it's, again, education like, and, and acceptance then and giving them a place in our society will really help them. <laughs> like another argument as well would be um like pharma getting pharmaceutical companies involved versus something like uh, what you were saying like local grown locally sourced money back into the local community i don't see anything wrong with big business versus small business mm-hmm. at the end of the day it's like tesco's versus a farmer's market yeah if you're going to make a responsible choice you're going to make the right choice. And I think especially with cannabis users, especially Irish cannabis users, 
they would rather buy local, shop local, support local, than walk into Tesco's and buy cannabis from whatever dispensary. Like the Irish cannabis advocates have fought for so long for it. I think they would be very, they would rather go to the small local supplier than they would be going to the big multinational corporations. Yeah. But at the same time, I don't think you can totally discount, like take away pharmaceutical companies involvement in it either. Mm-hmm. Because at the end of the day, they're the ones with money. They're the ones that are going to do the research. They're the ones that are going to invest in the, the next generation or the, the, the next research, the next investment opportunities. Yeah. Small local businesses won't have that monetary backing in order them to move the cannabis forward and to discover what else can be done with cannabis. Yeah, no, you're right. There, there's a lot of money there, certainly, but behind these pharmaceutical companies, and that that gives them a lot of a lot of power. Um, that, that can be used in in many beneficial ways, uh, um, and nefarious too, I suppose. <laughs> um, but but again, it's it's us the people, like, and the, the people there with that are shaping policies that that then can help guide the hand of these pharmaceutical companies, because as as badly as I might speak of them at times. They're certainly beneficial to, to have that they're not evil as such really like well profit does motivate them um and that can lead to some bad decisions at times like that they're still at, at the core they're, they're producing medicine that they, they want to help people um and you know, profit is there as well obviously but but yeah they, they, they should they should play a role certainly within this um but but still you know it's it'd be interesting to, to see then like uh how policies are shaped, you know, say, like, let's say for licenses, if just for example, the, the, the cost, that that'd be a major barrier there. Um, because in, in Canada, that, that was a big barrier over there that, that, that cut out then the, the small local, the farmer's market type of stuff. Um, yeah. obviously if, if you people up there are then talking about regulations and uh, controlling this, the idea of like people just being able to grow their own cannabis to some people is horrifying. Like that's the stuff in nightmares. You mean anybody could just grow it? You mean anywhere? Like, oh my god! Like, you know that that's horrifying for some people. But again, like uh, that, they, they keep that uh, to keep that story going would be in the benefit of people who want to make profits. Because uh, if you're wanting to sell cannabis to people, well, if they can grow it, sure, you can't really sell that much to them. So that again, you know, that that's another motive why we yeah. trying to keep profit out of it because that then will take away our rights. To grow it imagine if somebody could tell you like you can't grow tomatoes like but there, there is that distinction in like a lot of people would be for legalize like legalize educate regulate yeah and to regulate it you need your lab testing the levels of thc levels of C- cbd etc yeah. etc to sell it quality control food safety etc if you're going to grow it at home you don't have that quality control testing. I'm all for right to grow. I completely think that everybody should have the right to grow a bloody plant, yeah. but you don't have the quality testing, the quality control. Yeah. What I, if I'm somebody glad, I'm picked it up and up, sold it? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm glad you brought this up because uh, did this again where the, the kind of community collectives would, would come in is uh, mm. within the community, you could, probably fund uh, or establish uh, the testing facilities there or again this is again where the government could come in and this is where the government could make uh, some money 
um, because they can authorize and approve laboratories that they carry out this testing. You know, a government approved laboratory that will carry out testing for X, Y, and Z, you know, known contaminants, known issues there that the cannabis needs to be tested for. The government could step in, you know, where the community doesn't have to kind of set it up themselves, you know, and it, and it could be done then for a small fee and the government make a, a few extra bucks off it. And me as a grower then, or anybody out there as a grower can have a facility where they can get peace of mind knowing that's government approved, you know, it's accredited and the results are going to be sound, you know, and there, there's no bias there in the results that are being given. Um, like this, this again. I think the finer details of that argument will, it'll probably come to light like when the legalization argument or when the legalization bill comes through, like all these arguments will start coming out. Do you think and I think a lot of it will be around quality control, the right to grow versus produced in a lab controlled environment, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Do, do, do you think, I think a lot um, of these arguments. Do you think if, uh, if it was to be legalized and we were to have a right to grow, let's say, and uh, they allowed us to grow four plants or, or six plants, let's say, do, do you think that still in itself is a bit um, stigmatic towards the community that... Um, if you're growing seven plants or, or if the, the limit was four and you grew five, um, that, that you're now again, like you're, you're, you're a criminal and what you're doing is constituting like criminal behavior again, because you're in breach of a kind of a regulation, you know, as mm. opposed to being some person, you know, like the reason you grew five plants is because you, you kind of wanted to grow five different varieties at the same time, let's say. Do you know, like, is not that a restriction? Or one was an experiment of a seed or a strain or something, like... Yeah, is, isn't that stigmatic <laughs> in the community then that, like, let's say alcohol, for example, let's let's compare. If, if you're brewing alcohol, there, there is no limit at the moment, like, currently. Like, there is no real limit because the amount you're, you're limited to, it's it's astronomical. You'd need a warehouse out your back garden to store it. Um, So so this really set the, the bar high for, for alcohol brewers at home. But no, no but like, we don't assumed then that a person is brewing alcohol that he's selling alcohol to like i i, I yeah. know one or two people who brew their own and they do not sell it like when you call by they're passionate about it they're like oh I taste this like i brew this yeah. one and like that's what the cannabis community would be as well isn't that stigmatic then to, to apply that limit of four of six of even 10 plants and then saying like if you breach this number that you're somehow maybe growing it for commercial reasons I, I don't think it's stigmatic, but I don't think it should be criminalized either. Like if the, the law turns around and says, right, you're allowed three plants, but you're growing five, you shouldn't be criminalized for growing five. You should be charged with breaking regulation and fined like any other business, like any other. It, it shouldn't be criminal. It should be a civil offense or an administrative offense. But when it comes down to the finer detail in the, in the policies, like when, when they determine the, the plant number, and uh, like it's, it's just a completely arbitrary number and it's kind of it, it's coming it's, it's reflective of the, the reefer madness kind of thing and it's uh that this need to control and reduce our ability to kind of produce it ourselves um it, it, it i just can't see that the underlying i can't uh, dismiss the underlying kind of uh stigma that there is there in this like because like if, if we were to set it up like you a commercial license where you can grow as many cannabis plants as you want and sell it for commercial reasons and then you've home growers like same as home brewers like well, why why if i grow 12 plants and the, the number is 10 that like again 
like wh- where is this arbitrary number coming from like how are they allowed to discriminate against us like if if, if i get caught with 12 plants like and i have a couple of kilos of cannabis that i grew over the last few years stored up in my 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 house why am i a criminal because of that why why is that not allowed like i i can't help but see that that's that's all because of reefer madness it's it's all about the stigmatization that oh if he's a kilo of cannabis he must be a drug dealer like is that not it could that am i wrong (laughs) i don't know i I can understand your point like i i would agree with it it's if you're like same if the the guards walked into your house and you're it's good friday where the off licenses and the pubs are closed (laughs) and you have a a living room full of slabs and there's knocking people knocking at the door and you're selling the slabs off yeah like I i can understand why they want to limit it yeah and like, I don't blame anybody for trying to limit it because at the end of the day, this legalization bill is coming in. The government do not want to legalize cannabis. Yeah. So they are, pardon my French, shitting themselves. Yeah. yeah. So they're going to want to be careful. And as much as I would disagree with it, mm-hmm. if they do want to limit the plants, then that's okay. Limit it, bring in legalization, bring in the law. Once the law is in, it is easily changed. Yeah. No, don't, getting don't, it in is the problem don't get me wrong yeah certainly growing four plants six plants ten plants whatever is much better than growing none and being criminalized even if you are to grow some um so th- like yeah i would be grateful of the fact of being able to grow even one plant at home like yeah. that that would be an, an achievement in itself i'd be grateful but still i wouldn't be able to rest and i know the the, the argument is going to be continuing now i have to engage with these bloody policy makers or whatever to to increase that number you know, the, 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 the energy is still required. The, the campaigning still goes on. Um, I can't help but bring back the when we were planning events there for um, the, the drug testing at the electric picnic. Um, Graham kind of talked about it. And, uh, and Katie actually from Chill Welfare, she gave us this tip. is like, if you're going to ask for something when you're going to, 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 uh, geez, to set up these uh, services at the festivals, always ask for more than what you need. It's like, if you need, yeah. if you need one buggy, ask for two even ask for three because they I can't give you one I can't give you three no problem yeah yeah exactly (laughs) if you need five thousand ask for ten thousand you know like always just ask for more and again I I take that mentality then into when I see policies and documents like that I'm always thinking forward I'm always like you know we need to set the bar higher you know because let's say if Gina Kenny's bill allows four plants to be grown at home and the amendment they're saying no actually you can only grow two like okay that that's good like, fine i'll take it no i'll take it like but we, we should be asking for 10 we should be asking for 20 and let them reduce it down to 10 maybe to six you know we, we need to set the bar higher ourselves like i i, I think i'm back to luke Ming flanagan's bill and in that bill i believe uh, he limits the amount of cannabis a person can carry on their person I, I don't know was it like five grams i think or something it was it was a very small amount of cannabis actually and I'm just like, why are we supporting this? I, it'd be, I, I would support it. I, I, did, I supported it at the time. But it's just like, what's this about? Why am I a criminal if I have six grams? <laughs> Again, I'm, I'm, I'm still going to like, like how, how do we even police this? Like, you know, you walk out of a cannabis cafe and the cops are going to stop and search you and make sure you're not leaving with more than what you should have on your person. But these social type clubs that you were on about or community clubs, they do have a limit on how much they're allowed to sell. You do, yeah. Like they're allowed how much each person is allowed to buy, how much you're allowed to sell in total as a social club per year, they have a limit on. Yeah. Well, so it's 
still limited. Like, did you know in Spain that it's still illegal? Like, if you go into um, one of the coffee shops over there that they have, and you buy cannabis and and you leave, the, the authorities could stop you on literally leaving the premises, search you, find you with the cannabis, and they can still find you and take your cannabis off you because it's uh, it's still illegal over. It's just somewhat tolerated within the, the private space. But what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to actually leave your cannabis at the club and they'll mind it for you and you can come back and consume it again there the next time in the private. I was in Benidorm last year, just before the lockdown, like the start of March, just before COVID kicked off. And I was talking to someone over there about the social clubs that they have and the access to it. And she was saying to me, like, you just walk in, you pay your 25 quid a year for your membership card. Um, I think I have a membership card somewhere from them. And you walk in, you pay your 25 quid, you get your membership card and you can buy as much as you want, but you have to stay on the premises for 30 minutes before you're allowed to leave, whether you consume it or not. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. You, you go in, you buy your little bit of cannabis and you cannot leave there for 30 minutes. You're supposed to leave it behind you. You're not supposed to take it with you. Yeah. You can't smoke um, joints with tobacco yeah. inside yeah. because of the smoking rules. And I, I found that really interesting. I was like, so what? Like, because you walk down the road in Benidorm and you'd smell it left, right and centre. Yeah. And I used to say, like, do the police actually enforce that? And they're like, not really, but there's always one or two that they catch. Yeah. You know, I don't like the look of that person. I have can do them for nothing else except cannabis. Yeah. So and you... I found that interesting that you have to stay there for 30 minutes. You can't just walk out the door. Nothing like that. Yeah, it's their, their little self-regulation that they, they put in place. Oh yeah, we make them stay for 30 minutes to consume and uh, if they leave then afterwards while well, they're sneaking it off the premises because, you know, we tried. <laughs> you know, I, I think that's the, the, the reason why they, they might do something like that. I wasn't yeah. aware of any such rule, actually. It's the first time I've, I've heard of uh, something like, like I that. Don't, I don't actually know. Is it in the law or is it just a kind of policy that the social clubs kind of brought in themselves to try, like, get themselves out of trouble on the other end, as you said? Oh, I tried to make them stay. And yeah. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting one. Or I, I don't think they could be policing that very well now while people are under lockdown and uh, they're probably getting takeaways. <laughs> you can't go in and socialize anymore. <laughs> Uh, no COVID and all that so at least they can bring it home now with COVID yeah yeah no certainly uh, yeah it'd be uh, interesting all right um, to, to see what happens here because uh, the, the patients have gotten the, the continued delivery of, of the, the cannabis to Ireland but the next step now is actually just getting it dispensed by the, the pharmacists here that's, that's that'll be the next uh, good achievement is for Vera and the other patients to be able to just go into the chemist get their prescription and walk back out the door and, and none of this kind of stigma or the private courier coming with this specialized medicine like oh that's the cannabis bus pulling up yeah. <laughs> <laughs> as far as i'm aware like pharma or pharmacies and stuff like they are on board with it they have no problem with stocking or dispensing yeah. but i think the the concern is security yeah oh, oh big time like yeah that, that, well I, I don't think there would be a if Let's say well, I, I ran the numbers for chronic pain and uh, the, the amount of people who would be benefiting from cannabis access in Ireland is uh, it's, it's astronomical. And um, I think the, the, the chemists, while they, they'd definitely be in a good position to, to help, they, they would be overwhelmed. I think there would be need, there would need to be specialized uh, dispensaries there for the, the cannabis flowers. I, I think where the, the pharmacies would play a role would be for the, the likes of uh, Vera with Eva and uh, the specialized uh, 
type of medicine that she would need like oils and pastes and stuff like that like it's a lot different from flowers much much different like and it's very specific like and that that's the important specificity of the compounds within the the medicine and uh, the consistency then of the that that supply that it's always consistently the same um like Ava needs that and other patients out there like Ava need that but somebody like Alicia Maher like she just needs the flower and she doesn't need it to be as consistent but it, it needs to be somewhat consistent obviously the same strain and within a certain kind of profile um, but it doesn't need to be like the oil would need to be um, so specific for uh, a, the case of uh, seizures and stuff like that um, so, so I think that while the pharmacies would serve those patients I think Alicia and other patients out there who may have uh, chronic pain insomnia and things like that a dispensary like where you could go in meet a bud tender i suppose is the term that they use over in america who, who's educated and can provide then a, a good kind of a information base of the products that are available oh you suffer with insomnia great we have this product here that'll help with that it's your first time using cannabis well maybe you want to try this product here it's cbg let's say and it doesn't have the thc present and it's not going to get you as high but it will help with your sleep <laughs> like yeah. This is a sort of, I don't think a pharmacy is at the, is equipped yet to, to deal with that. Like if you go into a pharmacy and you expect them to be able to tell you the difference between White Widow and Super Silver Haze. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like they, they wouldn't be looking at, uh-huh. <laughs> you know, exactly. You know, it's, it's, it's a, but if you went into them and said you need the 5% THC from uh, Bedrican and, it, and it's the, this one, like that, that's good for them. Like that'd be easy for them. But, but yeah, for cannabis, but- like... I think the the variety that's needed, Mm. it's needed to reflect patient individuality. Yeah. And like I said earlier, like some people don't like Indica, they don't like Sativa, they'd rather an oil, a paste, etc. Not all patients are going to use the same thing or the same product. No. Patients are different. They want different ways of consumption. There's some smokers out there who wouldn't smoke, but would take an oil or a vape or a paste. And that needs to be reflected in the availability as well on the market. But um, I, I'm just aware that we're, we're after going on another half an hour there since uh, we were wrapping her up there. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry if I'm oh taking off. Yeah, <laughs> sorry. We've been chatting for two hours. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, you're just going into a little bit of time warp on these things. Like, and I could probably talk with you for another hour or two more. You will certainly uh, have to have you back on as uh, as the year progresses and uh, get some updates on, on things and just discuss things further because. Uh, when Gino Kenny's bill uh, gets published, like I'm sure you'll have uh, some opinions that they share on that. Uh, so I, I'm definitely going to be uh, looking to get you back on in future. But before I go, is there any closing statements you want to get out there? Anything you, many messages you want to get out to the people? Cannabis ain't that bad. Stop stigmatizing people. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Stop with the stigmatization. Do your research. Educate yourself. Or follow me on Twitter. I'll educate you. That's <laughs> That's what I was just about to say. Where can people find you? It's uh, Natalie. What's your heart to handle? Uh, it's uh, Natalie Oregon one. Ron, on, yeah. Yeah, because someone took Natalie Oregon, and I think it's like my old account from years ago. Bastards. <laughs> <laughs> but I leave you with a closing statement by Albert Einstein. Oh. The definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. Yeah, exactly. And I think that sums up prohibition and cannabis pretty well. Yeah, that's it. Natalie, th- thanks very much uh, again for taking the time this morning. It's been, or this afternoon, it's been an absolute pleasure to, to sit and chat with you. 
Um, so thanks again. Thanks and, very uh, much, Martin. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. And there you have it, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that uh, interview there with uh, Natalie O'Regan. And uh, I very much enjoyed that conversation and I hope to pick it up again at another stage, uh, hopefully in person, um, once we get past all of these uh, bloody annoying restrictions around the coronavirus. Um, but guys, uh, just again to remind you, if you want to support the show, support the fight for cannabis legalization in Ireland, um, don't forget to sign up to the patreon.com forward slash Martin's World. Or also you can make donations in the form of bitcoins over on martinsworld.ie. And uh, guys, just as well, uh, don't forget, uh, like, share, subscribe, and uh, help to get this word out there. Um, the aim of the show is to, to help get a message of the benefits of cannabis legalization. So uh, let's get this to the people who need to hear this message. Um, so thanks very much, guys, uh, for your support, and uh, stay blessed. Keep it lit. Peace. <laughs>